This is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Throughout January, we will be exploring a biblical approach to the usage of the Enneagram for our spiritual formation. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this transformative journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a tremendous letter where Paul talks about what it means for us to live as Christ followers, displaying the epiphany light of Christ to the world throughout the ages to come. Our New Testament text is found in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll begin reading at verse 17. Paul says, Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles or as the pagans or as the non-believers live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness. Licentiousness is just a long word that means a lack of moral restraint. They have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says, this is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former ways of life, your old self corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves, to put on with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the Word of God. The Apostle Paul has a tremendous faith in our ability to change. I guess a better way of saying that, church, is that the Apostle Paul has a tremendous faith in God's ability to change us. We all know people in our lives who seem to believe that they just are who they are and they will be how they will be. And we just, and the rest of the world, just must accept them. Because that's who they are. It's almost as if they have this fatalistic view of their destiny and they don't see that they can change very much. But Paul... In Paul's writings, evidences a great, great faith in our ability to change or our ability to be changed by the power of God that's made available for us through Jesus Christ now. This ability to change, this process of change, is what we Christians call sanctification. That's just a theological term that 
means growing in holiness, becoming more like Christ. After we come to Christ, the thing that God most wants for us, from us, is that we just simply grow up. That we spend the rest of our life growing up. We never stop growing up. We grow up into Christ's likeness. We grow more and more into spiritual maturity. That's sanctification. Or as we Methodist types like to say, that is going on to perfection. And we shouldn't be afraid of that word perfection. I know that as a Methodist preacher, when we are admitted to the bar of the annual conference, one of the old historic questions that we are asked is, do you expect to be made perfect in love in this life? And sometimes I have to help Methodist preachers realize we are looking for only one answer at that point, and the answer is yes. Because if you're not expecting to be made perfect in love in this life, what are you expecting? If you're not going on to perfection, where are you going on to? Don't be afraid of that word perfection. That's a biblical term. It means just completion. It means maturity. Hopefully every day we're getting a little closer and a little closer and a little closer to our goal. That's what sanctification is. And you feel in that the same faith that we feel in the Apostle Paul. When we look at the Apostle Paul's tremendous faith, in us, in God to change us. God will accept us just as we are. God will welcome us just as we are when we come to Christ. But God's great love makes God refuse to ever leave us just as we are. That's sanctification. That's going on to perfection. That's growing up into Christ's likeness. Now that's a big pressure that's placed on us as Christ followers. We can never stay put in our spiritual life. We must always be in the process of growing up. But the good news, the gospel is that we're not just left to ourselves in this process of growing up into the image of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite texts from Paul comes from the second chapter of Philippians where Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he says to them that you, we, us, we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We must work it out. God works it in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, but then we spend our life working it out, making it real, applying the salvation, appropriating the gift of God in Jesus Christ for us. But I'm so glad for the very next verse that Paul adds, he says, after he says, we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, he says, for it is God who is at work in you, in us, enabling us both to will and to work to God's good pleasure. So we have to work it out, but it's not just us working it out, because as we are busy working it out, we know that it is God at work in us. But we have to let God work in us. We have to desire that with the greatest level of desire that we can muster in this life. After we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we spend the rest of our lives 
growing up in Jesus Christ. We are spending the month of January looking at what it means for each one of us to become the best version of ourselves that we can become. The world today desperately needs us to be the best version of ourselves. Our friends and our family, our congregation, desperately need us to be the best version of ourselves. For us to grow up in Christ and, and become the best version of ourselves, there are two things that we must do, friends. We have to first come to know ourselves better. We have got to allow the Holy Spirit to cast the bright light of the Holy Spirit on us so that we can ruthlessly and honestly look at ourselves and see who we are. You know, for a lot of us, it would be a step forward if we could just begin to see, see, see ourselves as others see us. The word confess or the act of confession is just based on the Latin phrase that, that says to, to, to see with, confessari, to see with or to say with. Confession in the Christian tradition is just saying those things about ourselves that God says about us. We know that we are wonderfully and fearfully made. We know that we are the beloved of God in Jesus Christ. We know that in Genesis 1 and 2, creation occurs and God says creation is good. But then there comes chapter 3 and the rest of the Bible. We need a strong theology of creation. We need to understand who we are by creation as the epitome of God's creation. But we also need a strong theology of redemption or transformation. Genesis 1 and 2 happened, but then comes Genesis 3, what we call the fall, and we can look around the world now at creation and at one another, and we know that we are not as God created us to be. We, I, I'm afraid in this culture, even within the Christian community, have replaced a theology of transformation with a desire for only a theology of affirmation. We, we should affirm each other as being wonderful creations, wonderfully and fearfully made, as the psalmist says, but we also are people caught in the brokenness of the human family, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here, O oh Lord, take and seal it. Take my heart and seal it for above. We need to recognize that we are people in great need of great transformation or redemption or sanctification or going on to perfection. And that's hard work. That work of confession is hard. That work of repentance is hard. And I don't know about you. I'm going to speak for myself only at this point. But I'm learning that the older I become, the harder repentance is for me. Because in repentance, I have to say, I've been doing something wrong, and I need to turn and go in a different direction. And maybe it's not true for you, but for me, it's hard for me to say that I've been doing something wrong for the last week, 
It's really hard for me to say I've been doing something wrong for the last couple decades or perhaps all of my life. The older I become, the harder repentance becomes for me because we just want to just begin to rest in who we are. We've done our growth for this life and we just want to relax now and everybody around us just needs to accept us as who we are. We've replaced the theology of transformation with a deep and burning desire for affirmation and affirmation alone. If we really want to become the best version of ourselves, we've got to be honest with ourselves as we come to know ourselves. And it is hard work because as as the prophet Jeremiah says, the, the human heart is deceptive and desperately wicked. That's the biblical view of the human heart, that we have this almost unbelievable power of self-deception. We have this almost unbelievable ability to create illusions about ourselves and others and the world around us, and then we can almost live our lives based on those illusions. The heart is very deceptive and Desperately wicked, according to Jeremiah. You know, it scares me to death when I hear people say something in this culture such as, I'm just going to follow my heart. Obviously, they have a very different understanding about their heart than um, the scriptures teach us about our heart. Every now and again, I see a bumper sticker where someone proudly declares that they want to follow their bliss. Most of the people in my life, and I'm assuming you folks too, are really glad that on most days I choose to not follow my bliss. Following my bliss might get me in trouble. So we need to have an appropriate understanding about who we are, our need for transformation, and have that same faith that Paul has in our ability to change, but really in God's ability to change us. We are enthusiastically optimistic about how God's grace can change us. We've got to know ourselves. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And then he goes on to say in that same passage that we need to test ourselves. There are a lot of tools out there that can help us get to know ourselves better. There are a lot of tools out there that can help us learn more about ourselves so that we can learn more about what a sanctified version of ourselves would look like. There are a lot of tools out there that can help me learn my my gifts so that I learn how to use my gifts and I can learn to compensate for my weaknesses and become the best version for myself. There are a lot of tools out there that can be helpful most of my life, I've, um, I've used the Myers-Briggs personality profile. Some of you may know what that is. If you aren't, don't worry about it, but I, I can say this. If you do know about Myers-Briggs, uh, you probably know something about what it means when I say that I am an ISTJ on the Myers-Briggs personality profile. Uh, I'm so grateful, so thrilled that God led me to marry an ENFP. If I had married another ISTJ, nobody could stand either one of us. 
So if you don't know what an ISTJ is or ENFP, my wife can tell you all about that. Sometimes we need to know ourselves so that we can know where the change needs to occur. During the month of January, we're going to be looking at the Enneagram. Pastor Melissa, this coming Wednesday, will start an online Zoom course on the Enneagram for Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Just email Pastor Melissa and she'll make sure you're on the list. A good group of you have already signed up and she'll send you the Zoom invitation. And at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, she'll lead you through a study of the Enneagram. Um, the Enneagram is just another tool out there that can help you learn about yourself, that can help you see where it is you need to change, that can help you know why you have some of the struggles that you may have in relationships to other people. The Enneagram is just another tool, but it is a tool that's rooted in the Christian tradition. The Enneagram goes back, a lot of us believe, to Evagrius of Pontius, who was an early church father of the 4th century, uh, is from Evagrius that we eventually develop what we call the seven deadly sins in the Christian tradition. And some of us think that the nine categories um, that we see on the Enneagram, the nine personality types that we see on the Enneagram, also can be traced back to some of the writings of Evagrius of Pontius, that Christian church father of the 4th century. So you can learn something by learning something about the Enneagram. You don't need to understand the Enneagram to understand what I'm getting ready to say to you. I'll try to illustrate it, but I, I am a number one on the Enneagram. Uh, I've learned a lot by learning what it means to be a number one on the Enneagram. There's nine possibilities there, and we're all complex, and we all are a mixture, but basically, I'm a number one there on the Enneagram. And the Enneagram, because of its core Christian makeup, teaches us humility. The Enneagram teaches us that my strength is at the same time my weakness. That which is possibly my greatest strength can become my greatest weakness. Let, let me illustrate that. As a one, um, as a one, I tend to get things done. As a one, I'm task-oriented. As a one, I'm, I'm driven. As a one, I can accomplish things. Um, that's probably part of the reason I have four earned academic degrees. I'm a one. I was raised to be a one. As a one, um, I'm, I'm usually never satisfied with the status quo. And as a one, the culture around me tends to reward my, my oneness. As a one, the culture around me tends to appreciate the fact I'm a one. The problem is sometimes they just don't want to hang out with me because I'm a one. As a one with those strengths, that means that I'm also a little impatient. I'm impatient with me. I'm trying to not be as impatient with you as I used to be, but I'm still impatient with me more than with other people. But as a one, I can be impatient. As a one, I can be demanding both of myself and the people around me. As a one, I can expect perfection. As a one, I can focus on the details, and I want everyone to get the details right. As a one, I can so focus on the task at hand that I can forget to look at the people that I'm dealing with. Our culture, as I said, rewards those of us with these kind of one tendencies, but they just don't want to go out and 
hang out with us on a Friday night. You know, I think people like John Wesley was a one. I think the Apostle Paul was a one. And you see the trouble it got him into uh, in places like Corinth. Because that which is our strength, which we need to understand, can also become our weakness. And the Enneagram could be one of those tools that can help me learn that. So the Enneagram can help me learn what would it look like for me. Not necessarily you, but what would it look like for me to become the best version of myself? What would a sanctified Jeff who happens to be a number one look like? And really, I've been on this journey for about 40 years, and I know that a sanctified version of me, not necessarily you, but a sanctified version of me means I've got to learn how to rest. I've got to learn how to rest in God's grace. I've got to learn how to rest in God's promises. I've got to learn how to relax. I, I, I've, I've been working for 40 years to try to learn that important Christian discipline of Sabbath. Sabbath keeping, Sabbathing comes hard for me because in order to Sabbath, and this is the point of Sabbath, in order to Sabbath, I've got to be willing to stop doing what I'm doing for a period of time and trust that God will do what God does, and even trust that you will do what you need to do while I Sabbath. But by nature, as a one, I have a hard time Sabbathing because I'm afraid if I Sabbath, if I relax and quit for 24 hours, you may mess everything up. So that's a lot of pressure on a, on a one. But I, I know that for me to be the best version of myself, I have to take what a one personality is. Some people call them A-type personalities. Use whatever tool to discover who you are that benefits you. But I, I, I have to learn what it means to sanctify the personality that I have. You know, I know people, by the way, who they, in order to become more sanctified, God knows they don't need to learn how to rest any more than they do right now. But I need to learn how to rest, relax, practice Sabbath, trust God, not be so demanding of myself at times, and certainly not be so demanding of other people. So this is just a, a snippet of the journey I've been on for 40 years because I'm committed to spiritual growth. I'm committed to sanctification. I'm committed to going on to perfection. I'm committed to ongoing conversion in my life. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was at one point in my life. You've heard me refer to myself as a recovering control freak. I'm a recovering perfectionist because I know that that's the area I've got to work in in order for God to, to sanctify me in order for me to become the best version of who I can be. So in the month of January, we're going to be helping each other with this. The Enneagram will be made available to you as a way of helping you participate in some of this self-discovery. After we learn more about ourselves and get honest about ourselves, 
The second thing we have to do in order to become the best version of ourselves is we've got to then use the means of grace. And we Methodist types, we, we talk about the means of grace a lot of times. Those means of grace or channels of grace or instruments of grace are those gifts that God has given us to help us grow up, to help us grow up in Christ. And we talk about the means of grace a lot in Methodist circles. Means of grace such as prayer, fasting, study, study of Scripture for information, study of Scripture for transformation as we listen to the voice of God, study of Christian classics. We Methodists talk about Christian conferencing being a means of grace. We all need to have some other sisters and brothers in Christ in our life that can speak truth to us, that understand us, that hold us accountable. I have kept a spiritual director in my life for over 40 years now. Um, my spiritual director has changed over the 40 years. I, I think I wear them out after a while. But I've kept a spiritual director in my life because I believe that Christian conferencing, having someone in my life that can speak truth to me and hold me accountable is essential to spiritual growth as a means of grace. We've got to use the means of grace. After we understand ourselves, we've got to use the means of grace to put us in those places, to put us in those positions where grace is happening, where Jesus is happening, where growth can happen. So we use the means of grace. Enneagram, by the way, can be a means of grace. I want all of us to become our best version of ourselves. We know that God wants us to be the best version of ourselves. We know that our families, our friends, need us to be the best version of ourselves. And we know and God knows this world around us needs us to be the best version of ourselves. This past week on Capitol Hill, we saw what the worst version of some people would look like. We, for God's sake, for the sake of our nation, need to become the best version of ourselves. We need to nurture the better angels of our personality. There are two words that I rarely ever use for some obvious reasons. You've heard me say I never use the word, almost never use the word awesome because it's overused in our culture and most of the time when people use the word awesome they're not referring to something that's awesome. I, I, I reserve the word awesome for God usually. I only want to use the word awesome when it really is something that inspires all. But there's another word that particularly in the last year I've become more and more restrained in using and it's the word unprecedented. Because over the course of the pandemic I've heard people use that word unprecedented and the historian in me knows that oftentimes when they're referring to something being unprecedented it's not really something that's unprecedented. It might be something that's been unprecedented in their lifetime. 
but pandemics are not unprecedented. Pandemics have happened frequently in, in human history. We know about the pandemic of 1918. We know about the, the Black Death that hit Europe in the 14th century that, that um, caused the deaths of a third of Europe. So pandemics are not really technically unprecedented. So I, I really refrain from using the word unprecedented unless it is something that's unprecedented. What we saw happen this week on Capitol Hill, though, is, um, is unprecedented. There's only been one other time in American history when our capital has been under assault, when our capital has been attacked. It was during the War of 1812, and it was an enemy nation at that point, an enemy nation, uh, the Commonwealth of Great Britain that was attacking us and attacked our capital. So it has happened before, but what was unprecedented about this past Wednesday was it was attacked by Americans. God knows that we need to be the best version of ourselves. We need to access the better angels of our personality. Because if we in the Christian community refrain from doing that. The question becomes, who will? God knows if we don't do it. No one, perhaps, will do it.